And as we move into this topic of faith, I want it to be something that you clearly understand. I don't want it to be arbitrary. I don't want it to be random. I don't want your idea of faith today to be caught up in mysticism, but I want your faith to be caught up in rationality and practicality as the Bible has said faith should be. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, as we dig into your word, as we dive into your word, Lord, we pray that not only you will reveal to us your word, God, but you will reveal to us your nature. You will reveal to us your heart. You reveal to us what true faith is, God, so that as we leave today that we won't have a belief in you that is built on anything else but the truth. Open our spiritual eyes, God, open our spiritual ears so that we can hear the word of God and so that the word of God can operate and do as it pleases. It is in your name we pray, God. Amen. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is quite simple. What is faith? What is faith? Now, this is a question that no one ever has to ask because many of us have presupposed that we know what faith is. Most of us will arbitrarily go to the Hebrews text when somebody asks you, well, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that scripture. It is a great scripture. It's a true scripture. But faith has to be expanded just beyond that one definition of faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So for many people, though, how do we define faith? How do we define faith? For most of us, the definition of faith is the anticipation and hope of a desired outcome. That's what faith is for most of us, which means we have a hope, we have a desire, and we pray for a desired outcome. And so for many of us, when that is our definition of faith, that means that if I need money, I have faith that it will happen. Or if I need a job, it will happen. Or healing, it will happen. Save the will of God. See, this is actually an entire movement, one of the most dangerous movements of the 20th century in the 21st century, which is the word of faith movement. That is to believe that all I have to do is believe God well enough, believe God hard enough, and God will do whatever he wants me to do because it's a matter of my faith and my belief, and it totally disregards that there's any will of God at all. That's not faith. So what is real faith? I have a definition for that too. Real faith is the complete dependence and trust in God who holds the outcome, trusting that his ways are best. That's a long definition. But it's long because it completely exacts and tells us what real faith is. This became very real for me very recently when I was walking down some stairs with Elliot, our youngest son, and as we were walking down the stairs, we were at a hotel in Atlanta, and it was a, an unfamiliar staircase for him, and there was this large window on the stairwell, and as we began to walk, Elliot just kept looking out of the window. He kept looking out of the window, and as we took the first step, he was still looking out of the window, and I was holding his hand, and I kept thinking, he doesn't know anything about this staircase. He doesn't know anything about this stairwell. He doesn't know anything about this hotel. Yet, he is focused on what's going on out of that window. And it became very real for me. See, it wasn't so important what steps he was on. It was as important to who was holding his hand. See, that's what faith really is. Faith is not necessarily concerned about what's in front of me or the outcome. But faith is the earnest belief, not in the outcome, but in God. See, the only way he could truly trust what was going on with those steps is that he truly trusted me. The steps were not a concern of his because he knew whose hand he was holding. See, I've heard a lot of people quote this, and I think it's a Martin Luther King quote that says, faith is taking the next step even when you can't see the staircase, but that can only be possible if you truly trust the person whose hand you're holding. And so what we have to realize is that real faith is the complete trust in God's ability and what God works and wills in our lives, not just what we desire to happen. 
It's a text that most of us are familiar with, and so we're going to go to it today and exposit it just a little bit so that we can say what, see what real faith looks like. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verse 12, we're pretty familiar with this, but I really want to to dissect it and open it up so that we can understand what real faith should look like for Christians, what real faith should look like for believers. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good but if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king O Nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter if this be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In Daniel, Babylon had been seized by King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was seizing Jerusalem, and the king at that time over the province of Jerusalem had now taken over, which was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not a believer in the God of the Jews. He had his own belief system, and he had his own gods in which he worshipped. But not only did he have his own gods that he worshipped, he also had a requirement for everybody who had become a citizen of his province, and that was that you bow down and you worship the image that he had. See, if you are an, an Israelite in that time, it automatically puts you in a compromising position. Why? Because we have in strict instructions from God that we are to worship nothing else, no other image, no other God, but the Lord our God. And so if you are an Israelite in this time, there is no more damning thing that you could have been told that either you will bow down to the image that I have created or you will die. I can't expect everyone in this room would be as equipped to handle this situation as these three were. But what I want you to see first, that the first point of today's sermon is they had a big problem. They had a real big problem. And many of us today may have come into this room with seemingly big problems, but they had a real big problem. See, for them, it was a matter of either you will bow down to what I've done or you will die. See, a lot of us today, in figurative ways, we bow down to what the world says. We bow down to what the world anticipates of us. We bow down in sin in certain areas of our lives, and there is no cost of our life at stake. Yet these people have a huge problem, which is either you bow or you die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the Babylonian names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The Bible says that these three were appointed as officials over the affairs of the province in Jerusalem. Not only have they taken position in the province, but they have also taken on Babylonian names. Now, you may wonder why this is significant, but it's something I do want you to see. Now, even though they were Israelites, even though the God of Israel was, was their God, I want you to see that they didn't decide to rock the societal boat. What do I mean by that? They didn't decide, oh, well, no, we're Israelites, so we won't take a position in your, in your kingdom. What kind of culture is that? We're not Babylonians. We're Christians. They didn't do that. Oh, no, we're not going to take, take your name on. No, that's too worldly. We're not going to do that. that. That's crazy. We wouldn't do that. We're believers. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. They were not rocking the societal boat. And I want you to see this because even parts of the book of Daniel are written in Aramaic. Now you say, well, what's, what's the significance of that? 
Daniel wasn't, he didn't speak Aramaic. Daniel wrote and spoke in Hebrew. So why would he write portions of this book in Aramaic? Well, that was the governing language of, Bab- of the Babylonians. It was Aramaic. You say, again, well, what's, the, what's the significance of this? You have to be able to see that what they didn't do was at the immediate point that they felt their culture was disrupted, they didn't protest. When they had to give up their names, they didn't fight the system. When they had to take a position, they didn't fight the king. Daniel even writes in their language so that they are not rocking the boat. You say, why is that so important? I want you to be able to see this. If they took a stance because they had to change their name, then they're not defending God, they're defending their culture. If they had to take a stance because they had to work a position that wasn't a a Jewish or an Israelite position, then they're not taking a stand for God, they're taking a stance for their culture. And see, what's going to happen is they would have ended up in prison, but it would have been for the wrong cause. See, real faith is always sincere about what offends God, not what offends me. See, far too often there are people in the world who cannot demonstrate real, genuine, and sincere faith because we have more faith in our blackness, in our whiteness, in our political acumen than we do in God. And everybody wants to take a stance, but how many people are taking the right stance? See, in this moment, if they take a stance on anything else, everything that happens to them, everything that's reciprocated to them is because of their own culture, not because of their culture in God. See, it is the responsibility of Christians to remain, as the Bible says, quiet, even in unrighteous leadership. And the only time that we say anything is when our ability to practice our Christian faith becomes inhibited. Can you imagine if they were killed before they could take a stance for their faith? It would have been a great thing they did for the culture, but God would have been invisible. I want you to see this because it's really important that The most important thing in our lives should be that we have real faith in God. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in our culture, not faith in our ethnicity, not faith in our jobs, not faith in anything else that doesn't derive from God. And you may say, well, because of that, they created a real big problem for themselves. You sure did. They created a problem so big that only a real big God could have gotten them out of it. And the only way that anybody in this room would be so willing to create such a problem is that you really believe God is who he said he is. There have been times that many of us have faced situations and faced circumstances where it required us to take a big stand for our faith. And we didn't do it. Because oftentimes... We feel like the things that we face are bigger than the God that we claim we know. There are two types of faith I want you to be able to see today, and that's reactive and proactive faith. Reactive and proactive faith. Reactive faith is what we're most familiar with. That's what we're most familiar with. Reactive faith merely passively sits back and reacts to all the things and the circumstances in life and it dictates how much faith we have so that we can know how much we need to respond. That's how most of us live our lives. We sit back and we wait for things to go wrong so that we can evoke the right amount of faith so that we can respond accordingly. Proactive faith is when all the decisions we make in life are made with the full confidence in who God is and what the Bible says. So proactive faith doesn't have to pray to God to make a way out of bad decisions because one, proactive faith never lets go of the hand of God. And two, it always defaults to the will of God. There was a guy who posted something on Facebook quite recently and it was really disheartening to me because he presupposed something about God that wasn't true. 
He said that he had just bought a 2019 Infinity and that he had declared that this was the year of something arbitrary in his life. This is, and he said that he heard in the spirit cars cranking up. And so he drove down to Infinity and when he got to Infinity, even though he had only had his Nissan Sentra for a year, God had tremendously blessed him with a new car. Y'all know me. I said, well, did God bless you with that negative equity too? I said, see, listen, we have to be sincere sometimes. Most times we bless us and we say it's God because God doesn't care if you have a 2019 infinity or not. God just cares that you share the gospel. And if there's a vehicle required for you to do that, God certainly is not looking to increase your amount of debt to make sure that you are comfortable enough to drive around and not share the gospel. Reactive faith, just like this guy, always wants to put a demand on God. God, you're going to do this because I believe God. I believe hard enough. You're going to do this, God, because I'm a good person, God, and I live righteous. I deserve this, God. But I want to show you something. I don't know how many of you remember this, but King David had a baby out of wedlock with Bathsheba. And when he had that baby out of wedlock, prophet Nathan came to him and said, listen, this baby is going to die. Why was this baby going to die? Because not only did he have the baby out of wedlock with Bathsheba, but he intentionally put her husband Uriah on the front line and killed him so that he could cover up his sin. And so when Nathan comes to him and says, because of the sin you have committed, this baby is not going to live. You know what David did? Bible says he prayed and fasted for seven days, so much so that when he prayed, he cried so much that the dirt behind underneath him became mud. Now, on the surface, that looks like, look, yeah, he's just reacting to the circumstance. That's just reactionary faith. But it's not. Let me tell you why. You know, the Bible says that David did after the baby died. Said he got up, he washed his face, and he ate a meal. Why? Because David in that moment prayed and he earnestly desired that this baby would not die. But when he saw that the baby died, he only had one comfort. And that it happened because it was the sovereign will of God. Now... People with bad theology will tell you, well, he must not have prayed long enough or he must not have prayed hard enough. But my question would be, what about the will of God? See, many of us are disingenuous towards God because we have been trained to have a bad belief in God. And so most, most of us don't even want to talk about the idea of God because God has not worked the way people have told us he should work. And so there is a resentment in us toward a God that doesn't even exist. It's a man-made God. And of course you would be angry with him because he's not there. He doesn't exist. Now, we all have to have the same stance that David had. Even in the midst of his atrocious offenses, he never lost his real faith in God. And he knew how to default back to the will of God. I'm going to tell you something about the will of God. It's always convenient to say, thy will be done. Until they're on a respirator. It's always convenient to say that will be done until you can see that it's not the will that you want to be done. It's a hard thing to default to the will of God when you can see clearly that not only will the will of God not be what I want, but it's going to cost me something I don't want to have to pay. But I'm telling you now, you can't believe in partial sovereignty. 
Either God is in control or he's not. And if he's not in control, that means we are. And if we are in control, that's damnation. Because we can't be in control. So, what I want you to see is that the only way that you can say in the most difficult moments that will be done is not just when you have a problem, but it's the realization that I have a real big God as well. I have a real big God as well. When we look back at our text, we can see that in the midst of this big problem, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have an incredible rebut to Nebuchadnezzar. What did they say? We have no need to answer you in this matter. It's beautiful. Why in the world were they able to say this? Well, they knew that Nebuchadnezzar was indignant about God. And because he was indignant about God, they knew that his line of questioning was intended only to demean who God was. See, you have to understand that strong faith in God breeds complete obedience to God. But I also want you to see that when we have weak faith, it always brings disobedience in our lives. Look at Abraham. Abraham was told that he was going to conceive a son with his wife in his old age. He was told by God, directly from God, that that would happen. And after too much time passed, it wasn't just the outcome that he was questioning, but he was questioning, is God really true? And when he began to question God, sin began to arise in his life. I had a friend that said to me the other day, she said, you know, I found out it's okay to question God sometimes. It's okay to to be upset with God. No, it's not. Because if I'm ever mad at God, that means God didn't behave the way that I expected him to behave. If I'm ever frustrated with God, that means that I have created an expectation of God that God has not created for himself. And that means I'm I'm expecting more of God than he has told me to. See, real faith causes us to stand firm in whatever God has said and whatever God is doing, not because we trust ourselves, not because we trust the outcome, but because we trust God. When Jonah didn't trust God, he sinned. When Isaac didn't trust God, he sinned. There is a pervasive thing. The less you trust God, the more sin will enter your life. So faith is not just a matter of how hard can you trust God for an outcome, but how firm are you in who God is. That's why the anchor holds. Because it's God who anchors our lives. I want you to see that they say what they say after this, and I believe it best encompasses what faith is. Listen to this. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, important part. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Look, some people are going to look at when they say if and say, what do you mean if? See, that's not faith, baby. You don't, you don't if God. It's when God do it. See, God going to do it because you, you got to decree and declare. You got to name it and you got to claim it. You got to put a demand on that faith, baby. You got to make it an action. But you got to understand that faith is more than an action. Faith as an action is just a bad definition of faith. Faith is a fixed and permanent state of being that all Christians should have because we believe in God. See, faith that is anything else only acts as a means to be reactionary. 
Faith has to be what we always have. How many times have we prayed, labored, hoped for an outcome that we thought made sense and it didn't happen? Everybody in this room. How many times have we looked up to God and said that we could declare our healing, declare our prosperity, and it didn't happen? How many times have we declared to God our personal truths about what we desire in our lives, and it just did not happen the way they told us it was going to happen? So my question is, when that happens, we must decide who the liar is. Is it God or is it us? You say, well, I'm not lying about anything, but anything that you have that is a false and bad belief about God inevitably must be a lie because God can only be truth. And so anything I think about him that is not fixated in truth must be the opposite of truth, which is a lie. How many of us have built up a belief about God that was rooted in a lie the whole time? How many of us have been earnestly praying? How many of us have been earnestly hoping? How many of us have been earnestly desiring about things that we never considered the will of God about? Do you know that's borderline blasphemous? There is no more scary thing for a preacher to do than to say, God will do this. How do you know that? They didn't even say this. You know what they said? They said, if. Why? Because they didn't know what the will of God was. Listen, there are certain things that we know about God because the Bible tells us God will not lie. I know that because the Bible says that. God will not forsake his own. I know that because the Bible says that. God will not speak words that will return to him void. I know that because the Bible says that. But what I can't do is be able to completely discern what the will of God is for my life. I can't always see that. That's why the Bible says we see in part and we know in part. And even our very vision is darkened because we don't have the full breadth of knowledge and wisdom that God has. See, if you believe that God is omniscient, if you believe that God is omnipresent, if you believe that God is omnipotent, then you must always default to that position. And so even when I don't know what's going on, I do know who's in control of what's going on. That's what real faith is. See, if I'm able to tell you what God will do and God doesn't do it, you're not going to resent me. You're going to resent God. You're going to resent the image of God. See, real faith in God is not telling people there's a new gospel song out and I hate the song. Won't he do it? I don't know. I don't know if he will. Tell me what it is. I can't put a demand on him. It may be my desire for God to do something. But I have to default to maybe he will. But what we never address as Christians is what if he doesn't? What if we pray about somebody living and they still die and they're gone and we still have to reconcile who God is? What if we ask God for a position that we have faithfully served in that we think we deserve and we believe hard enough that we're going to get it and they give it to somebody else? And I have to walk back in there on Monday with the, fame, the same faith in God that I had on Friday. See, the reality is, is I can't just be friends with God when he's doing what I want him to do. I also must have a relationship when he's doing what I don't want him to do, but I have to trust that if he is who he said he is, that whatever he's doing is better than I could do it anyway. And it's better for me. 
So what I want you to do is, please, for your sake and everyone else's, please stop thinking that you can put a demand on God. You can't. You can't. And I guarantee you it will make you feel more comfortable in your relationship with him when he doesn't do what you want him to do because you'll be able to say, you know what? Wasn't his will. It wasn't his will. Martin Lord Jones has a quote, and I love this quote. He says, There is no other prayer I know other than thy will be done. That's the only thing we pray. That's the only thing we can reasonably pray. How many times have we spent hours petitioning God about something that we wanted when we could have ended that prayer in five minutes? Thy will be done. Do you remember what Jesus prayed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus, who had the full breath and knowledge and wisdom and deity of God dwelling in him bodily, came petitioning God and he said, this cup is bitter to handle. And I don't want to have to bear the burden of what I have to do. He said, so if you would, if, if you would, this is Jesus praying, if you would, I'm defaulting to your will, if you would, let this bitter cup pass. And him knowing the full breath of who God was says, but nevertheless, it's not my will. It's not what I want. It's not what I desire. But thy will be done. Now, you're probably asking now, well, if you're telling me that I don't pray to get God to do what I want God to do for me, then what is the point of prayer? It's a wonderful question. The point of prayer is to petition God to see if what my will is, is what his will is, but also praying to God that if it's not what you want, that you will give me the grace and the peace to handle what your will is. That is real prayer. See, if you don't pray that way, when you start seeing the writing on the wall, you'll come back and you'll try to fix the last prayer you prayed. You'll try to clean up something. Oh, I talked to somebody wrong last time. You know, maybe, so maybe that disrupted the will of God. Oh, I handled this wrong, so let me, let me come back and pray again. No. Our prayer should always be, God, this is my desire. This is what I want to happen. This is what I will for my life. I'm praying, God, that this is the same thing that you want for my life. But if it isn't, God, give me the grace. Give me the strength. Give me the endurance that if it doesn't happen the way I want it to happen, that I trust you more than I trust it. See, that's most of us. Most of us trust it more than we trust him. Because we think it will complete us. It will make us better. It will give us the room to spend the money we need. It will make us happier. But he is the one whose hand you must be holding, whose will you must default to, because inevitably, what God wills for your life is better than what you want for your life. Does that make sense? All right. I know this is not the typical faith sermon, but I want you to really understand who God is. And so our, our belief in God, our faith in God should be in what God is able to do. Not about what God will do. See, if I believe that God is as big as he is, then he can do whatever he wants. And if I believe what the Bible says about his relationship with me, then if he does whatever he wants, even in my own life, it's better for me because he's better for me than whatever I wanted. No matter how you try to rationalize what it is you want, what you have is what's better than what you desire. 
And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe God. Because if it were in the will of God for you to have it, you would have it. That's hard to hear, isn't it? That's hard to hear, isn't it? You mean to tell me that I don't have it because it's not in God's will? Yep. Well, who does God think he is? Why don't we go to Romans 9? Paul said in Romans 9, what if God, willing to make known his wrath, endured vessels, people he knew would never be saved because of his will? And then he, he says this, I bet you're going to ask, why does God still find offense? And then he, he answers the question, how can what is made answer back to the potter? And say, thou has made me wrong. If God is sovereign, and if God has a sovereign plan in our lives, then we don't have the right to look at him and ask him, what are you doing, God? So if anybody has told you that you have a responsibility to question God, don't. You better default to his will. Because you can't just trust God when you know what he's doing. You already can't see him. So why would you wait to see what he's doing to trust him? It's not a real relationship with him. The other thing I want you to see is, point number three, a big response. A big response. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their, gar their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, wait a minute, wait. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the, of the fourth one is... It's like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fire furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, it's amazing. We can see a few things here, and the Bible records exactly what we see, and I want you to be able to see this, and I want you to see how improbable and impossible it is that they survive. What are the factors? One, 
The furnace was heated seven times hotter than it normally is. That's one factor. So it removes any ability that anybody would make a claim that maybe it wasn't as hot as we thought it was. Not only was it hot, but he exceeded it. The next thing that we see is that they were completely bound when they went in. So there's no way that they could have gotten out. This is not Houdini. They didn't slip outside. It's not any of that. So it's hot. They're bound. And then the third thing that we see is that the flame was so hot and so real that it killed the people who took them up. All right. So you see this is hot, real hot. They ain't got no way to get out on their own. And we know it's real because the people who took them up were burned by the flame. So it removes any notion that maybe this event didn't actually happen. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and into the furnace he sees a few things that do not add up. One, they're no longer bound. That's the first problem. They went in bound. They're not bound. Two, they are walking in the midst of a furnace. Just in case you don't realize how this furnace works, it basically served as a dome and you walk into it, but nothing walk back out of it. And so they are, they're in there, they're no longer bound, they're walking, and the next thing he sees is what freaks him out. There is an individual in the furnace that they didn't put in there and he's walking too. I can only imagine Nebuchadnezzar is like, what in the world? And when he sees him, he says, I don't know who it is, but he looks like a son of the gods. Now, King James says the son of man, but let me tell you what that's what that term means. Son of the son of the gods is a pagan term that basically meant this ain't no human. I don't know who it is. I don't know what it is, but it looks like something I've never seen before. Whether it was the pre-incarnate Christ or whether it was an angel, we don't know. But what you do need to see is that there was something that was protecting them in the furnace. Now, why did God do what he did for these three? Have you not prayed harder about stuff than they did? Have you not believed harder about stuff than they did? But yet God decided to make a provision. And by the way, not just provide, but he orchestrates a miracle. Remember our definition of a miracle so people can stop claiming cheap miracles. Miracles are only when God moves outside of the natural laws that govern the world that he has established. So just in case you didn't know, fire burns. He already disrupted that law to perform this miracle. But why? Why did he do it for them? See, it's easy to say because of their faith, but their faith is not merely based on an individual event. Their faith was the thing that got them in the furnace in the first place. See, if you didn't have the faith that they had, let me tell you, you wouldn't have to worry about the furnace because you wouldn't have made it into the furnace. The reason they had great faith is because they had great belief in the ability of who God was. And it was because they believed God, they said, there is nothing that you can do that can destroy what we know about God. That is what real faith is. Is Yes, I don't want to have to burn and it is my desire that he'll get us out. But if he doesn't, I just want you to know he was able to. That's what real faith in God is. It's not just about what he's doing when it's convenient for me, but it's about am I willing to put myself in uncomfortable situations for what I know about God? Am I willing to disrupt what is comfortable in my life for the truth I know about God? Unless you have that point, you'll never get to the furnace. So you ain't got to worry about that. But why does he do it? We got to see why. See, what happened after they didn't burn in the furnace? Nebuchadnezzar looks and he has an immediate change of heart. He says, wait a minute. 
There ain't no God like this God. The gods we worship don't compare to this God. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and make a decree right now. Anybody say anything about their God, anybody do anything to their God, anybody look at them cross-eyed, you're going to be torn limb for limb because the name of their God is great. And he has more power than the gods that I worship. So what was the point of him delivering them? It brought God the most glory. That's it. See, the same reason he wouldn't get Jesus off of the cross is the same reason he got them out of the furnace. Because God does, please understand this, whatever most glorifies him. So perhaps the things that you have not been getting in your life is because it brings him more glory, brings you more glory than it brings him. Maybe your life would be more at peace when you would honestly desire what glorifies God and not what glorifies me. Because you will end up in a cycle because of you because of your bad heart issue of bad decisions. Because I want you to get this. Faith ain't a mind issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. So. When the Bible says, and we've all quoted it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This isn't just the I believe in God kind of faith. You know those people, you believe in God. Oh yeah, I believe in God. But do you, but do you believe God? So those two things are not mutually exclusive. Anybody with common sense, even the Bible tells us, has enough knowledge to look at the stars, look at the trees, and look at everything else and realize, you know what, somebody made this including me. He said, anybody with common sense knows that. But do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God is in control of your life? And do you believe that you can trust God more than you can trust yourself? So that you will know that no matter what I go through, I am okay with it because I'm okay with God. I'm telling you. That is the only way you will be able to make it through anything in life, no matter how detrimental it may seem. I got to be okay with what's happening because I got to be okay with God. Even though what happened may be painful, it may hurt, it may be disturbing. But if God is who he said he is, then I won't let what's happening disrupt my relationship with him because the fact of the matter is... Is that he's sovereign over what's happening anyway. So. So you get. Stop making faith a verb. Stop making faith an action. Do you have faith? Do you have faith? You got to faith it till you make it. Makes me want to vomit. Please. Stop saying that kind of stuff. Faith is not just what you conjure up when it's convenient for you. But it is literally who you are. And so when you understand that the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not talking about some temporary thing you bring into your life when you need it. Without a real right relationship with God, which is actual faith, you can't be pleasing to him at all. And so what is God saying? If you believe in him enough to have a relationship with him, then you have faith. If you don't believe in him enough to have a relationship with him, then you don't believe in him at all. That's what the Bible is saying. And so if you don't believe in him at all, it is impossible for a sinner to be pleasing to God. So if you are not a Christian, then you do not believe. You don't. You don't love him. You don't love God. If you are not a Christian, you don't have faith. Unless when you look at the Bible and what the Bible says about him and you wholeheartedly surrender to that, then you do not believe. I'm stressing this because I don't want you to get frustrated about who God is. And then one day you realize that 
All of your frustration is based off a false image of God. So I know you're wondering now, how will this help me? I'm telling you, if the baby still dies, if you lose the job, if you die in the furnace, if when you search your heart and there is no sin there, then whatever happened only happened because it was the will of God. And you can have comfort in knowing that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher are his thoughts than mine. And my only consolation in life is going to be that I totally trust God is who he said he is. By and large, no one would deny the fact that Michael Jordan existed. Even if you didn't have to see him, you know he existed. I ain't never seen Abraham Lincoln in Burlington, but I know he existed. Everyone knows that. But the real debate only comes in when you say, but I believe he's the best player to ever live. I believe he's the greatest of all time. Some people say, oh, no, you know what? I think it's Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell or Magic Johnson or for our lesser-knowing people, LeBron James. They just don't know better. See, they don't deny that he was good. They don't deny that Michael Jordan was great. They just say, eh, I just don't think he was the greatest of all time. See, with him, just because you don't believe he's the greatest of all time doesn't mean he ceases to exist in your life. He still goes on and does Michael Jordan things, even if you believe he's the greatest of all time or not. But what you have to see is in your own life, if you don't believe that God is the greatest, the most superior, the wisest, the biggest, the boldest, the best, then he's non-existent in your life. Not even a stench of him. We have to believe, as the Bible says, that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when we believe that, then our lives are completely shaped by a right view of God. And not a wrong view of God. So as we go forward, next week we're going to talk about how Christians strengthen their